Bill Benjamin, welcome to the Principal Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Arch, thanks for having me. Awesome. Hey, well, um, you have been introduced to me as the expert on EQ, emotional intelligence, um, and I've seen quite a bit of your work online. So I figured why not open up the conversation? But before we do that, could you just give us a brief introduction on yourself, your background, how, how you um, got involved in this line of work? Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, whenever I get called an expert in emotional intelligence, I just think, yeah, my teenage daughters do not think that. <laughs> well, thanks for asking. I have a very unique path to being a speaker on the topic of emotional intelligence because I have degrees in mathematics and computer science. Right. And how I came to this is I was working at a computer software company and I had done well. I was a high performer. And of course, what do organizations do with their high performers? Well, they promote them and make them a manager. Problem was, I wasn't a very good manager. You know, my, my mentors, you know, about leading and coaching were my high school basketball coaches or what I see on TV of college football coaches. And don't you just run around and yell at everyone and tell them what to do? Well, it turns out that's not a very good leadership style. So I really struggled um, with this area of, you know, mo motivating and managing people and leading change and mm -hmm. you know, all the things that we're expected to do as a leader. And it was at that time that my business partner in in this in the Institute for Health and Human Potential um, that I got exposed to this work. So it's over 25 years ago. And the thing that really attracted me, because at first when I heard emotional intelligence as a math guy, I'm like, oh, that's all soft and squishy. Yeah. Um, but when uh, my business partner explained the brain science of it and what happens to us emotionally, how that impacts our brain, how that impacts our behavior. Mm -hmm. um, I really recognized that was the thing I was struggling with. And so it really resonated for me. Um, and it really helped me. It helped me not only, you know, kind of be a better leader at this computer software company, but it actually helped me in my personal life too. Got it. And you, were you in a, just for my own benefit, were you in a sales role at this computer software company? I was. Okay. Yes. Got it. So you were naturally kind of an extroverted person, weren't afraid to put yourself out there. Um, and then, you know, as you worked your way up through the ranks, you became a manager. Got it. Um, I'm really glad you said the thing about, oh, when I first heard about EQ, emotional intelligence, I just thought this was soft and squishy. So I kind of dismissed it, right? Because I feel like um, the majority of people still do that in today's world, right? People haven't necessarily come to understand the benefits of, of understanding emotional intelligence and having enough emotional intelligence to deal with your peers in whatever capacity that might be. Um, so I'm really glad you brought up that point. Why do you, why do you think that still gets ignored? Why do you think that, you know, there, there hasn't been a lot of um, exposure to, to this topic, to this subject? Well, I think the more and more complex our world gets in terms of technologies, in terms of product, in terms of data analytics, there's a higher level of IQ and technical skills required to do your, you know, kind of um, frontline jobs. So your, your individual contributor jobs. Mm -hmm. So people, they, they learn, they develop, they become successful based on their IQ and technical skills. So when they get promoted to a job where actually IQ and technical skills, are, which has been proven by research, are not critical, mm -hmm. that the people skills, the emotional intelligence skills are, they don't recognize that. They think, okay, well, this is what got me here, my IQ, my technical skills. So that's what's going to you know make me be successful in a leadership role. So it, it amazes me that after 20 years of doing this, I, I'm, I'm in front of, you know, multiple audiences every month where they're still wondering, yeah, does he, emotional intelligence really matter? Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely understand where you're coming from on sen sentiment on that. Cause you always, you know, every time, especially at my age, like 
you know, every time you're, you're looking to get into a certain career path, or even if you're giving people advice, they're always talking about, oh, okay, what hard skills do I need to jump into this career? Mm -hmm. Like, do I need to learn a programming language, for example? Um, and then you get so good at that, that, you know, when you do end up working your way through the ranks, you forget how to have those soft skills and you forget mm -hmm. that you still need to continue developing those soft skills. Yeah. Um, so that becomes very critical at that point too. I will um, say that the good news is more and more organizations are recognizing the importance of interpersonal skills, of resilience skills, of those collaborate, and, and that there is a real business outcome for those. There's, there's a lot of research to back that up. So more mm -hmm. and more organizations are starting to recognize that and invest in that kind of training, more so at the leadership level right now. Uh, and for some organizations, it is starting to trickle down to frontline supervisors and even individual contributors. Sure. Okay. So all that being said, how do you define EQ? Yeah, there's really two aspects to it. So our, our definition is the first part is the ability to understand and recognize and manage our own emotions. Mm -hmm. That's the self part. The second part is the ability to understand and recognize and influence the emotions of others. So that's how I'm showing up for others. That's why I'm connecting, influencing, you know, demonstrating empathy. Uh, it's also, you know, how I build, you know, relationships with trust and respect so that I can step in and do some of the more difficult things. So one, one of the other things that I think, you know, turns people off of emotional intelligence, they think it's only about being nice to people, getting them to like you. And, and it's not, I mean, connecting, empathizing, people feeling trust and, and feeling valued by you is absolutely critical. But the other part of it is, is to do those difficult things, like have that tough conversation with someone, right? Give them difficult feedback, yeah. have, make a difficult decision that they don't agree with or that somebody won't like, or will be disappointed by um, we, we, by the way, we call those last 8% moments because we're all pretty good at the 92% of moments when everybody's getting along, when everyone's agreeing. But as soon as there's that last 8% decision where not everyone's going to agree, or, you know, I get into a conversation and I'm 85, I'm 90, 92% of the way there. And as I start to give the feedback and they know where this conversation is going, they start to get defensive. Now I react and most people, 68% in our research in that moment, they avoid. They kind of step back. They don't fully step in and say that last 8%. So our, our work is all about giving people the tools and skills to create connected relationships where there's trust and respect, and then also to develop the current <clears throat> skills to step in and do what's difficult. And again, I think that's another reason that people don't really understand what emotional intelligence is, that it's also about doing that tough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the disconnect really is, right? Because the first part of that was all about yourself, right? How do I get in touch with my own emotions? How do I know what I'm feeling? How do I know how to respond to certain emotions that I'm feeling inside me, right? And and so that's the kind of like, sure, that's kind of the mushy stuff that people- Well, and the only thing we, the thing we add to that to make it a little less mushy yep. is how do I recognize what my brain does <laughs> when I'm under pressure, when I'm stressed, when I'm overwhelmed? when I feel emotionally triggered. So mm -hmm. we add that brain science piece into it, which is what opens, because I've done, I mean, I've delivered this to US Marines, I've delivered this to NASA engineers, I've delivered this to surgeons. So the way we get them to open up and really be, you know, accept this is the brain science aspect of it. So yeah. you're, you're right, a lot of the self-awareness stuff can sound really soft and squishy, but when you put brain science to it, that people get and go, yeah, that happens to me, it mm -hmm. really opens them up. Yeah. And, and what I was going to say was like, when you introduce how 
understanding emotional intelligence can impact your relationships, especially like basically the entire thing that you said on part two of, of EQ, right? Mm -hmm. That entire thing on part two of EQ is exactly why people should be paying attention to this stuff, right? Because you're not doing everything that you do alone, right? You're doing this with other people. So how can you, how can you influence people? How can you persuade people? How can you get people on your side? All these things are very important. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, we're, we're talking about the business application. That's the focus of most of our work. Most of the people sitting in an audience, you know, emotions show up at home too. And so emotional intelligence is something that really impacts us in our personal lives. And that's one of the great things about the work is it isn't just about work. It's also about our, our, you know, our home life. Yeah. Yeah. So you, something you mentioned um, was that you teach people to, I guess, tell me if I'm off base here, but you teach people to be a little less reactive, um, calm under pressure, under tense situations. Mm -hmm. What are some strategies that you employ for, for teaching people how to do that? Yeah. And, um, so where we start before we get to strategies is in self-awareness. Okay. You have to recognize what's happening first. So that self-awareness, I mentioned the brain science. And what we share with people, the insight that people gain is that we have two parts to our brain. There's our cognitive brain where we do all our best thinking, our strategizing, our prioritizing, you know, our listening, our innovating. Creativity is all in that cognitive part of our brain. Yep. Then there's the emotional part of our brain which are centered in a small almond-sized part of the brain called the amygdala. And that emotional center is also the part of our brain that handles our fight or flight responses. So what we know is, is that in the design of the brain, when we feel threatened by something, the emotional brain, it jumps into the driver's seat first. It will start to take over our thinking. It will start to actually limit our cognitive thinking capacity. It actually reduces our ability to think complex thoughts. Sure. Because, because your emotions have taken over. Yes. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's the same system that reacts. Let's say you're in the jungle. And I know your listeners probably don't spend a lot of time in the jungle, but <laughs> it's a good metaphor. A yep. tiger comes out at you. Yep. Within 85 milliseconds, this amygdala, this emotional part of your system, senses the threat from the tiger immediately causes a cascade of chemicals first into the body, the blood moves to the major muscle groups, your heart rate increases, your breathing shortens, you're ready for fight or flight. The amygdala also reduces chemicals into the brain that reduces our cognitive thinking capacity. Mm -hmm. So we can't think because it doesn't have time to think, gee, how can I best collaborate with the tiger? (laughs) The tiger's going to rip your face off by then. Yeah, right. It wants to be racked right away. So fight or flight. Um, which is why in the middle of a difficult conversation, when the other person's starting to get defensive, Mm -hmm. the emotional system kicks in as if that's a tiger will limit our thinking capacity and move us to either avoid or fight back, which is the other, remember I said 68% of people, their natural emotional reaction is to avoid, but then there's the other 32% that fight is their response. And we call that making a mess. So we talk about people being either avoiders or make a messers. What about the people? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought, but what about the people that might freeze up in that moment, right? They freeze up in that moment and they're not exactly sure how to react. So they just say something and hope that it gets their point across and then try to exit the conversation. I guess they are avoiding, but yeah. do you see that with some of your clients as well, that they just freeze up and don't know how to act? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it really is fight, flight, or freeze. That's a really great point. In fact, I was coaching a woman yesterday mm-hmm. who um, is in some training programs that we do. And I've actually seen her, you know, in, in a group interaction freeze 
when she feels put on the spot and mm-hmm. she just can't speak. So because her emotional system is taken over, she's, you know, in front of others feeling, you know, the pressure. And so absolutely freezes is one of the responses. So I don't know if you ever had this happen, but you're giving somebody difficult news and they're just staring at you. They can't hear the feedback. They're, they're triggered. They, they, they can't, they're not thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I just keep going and say, oh, I'm just going to give them all the feedback. And then, you know, well, if they don't get it, that's their problem. You know, yeah, yeah. I'm the one who's not recognizing that they've been triggered emotionally and they're not really hearing the feedback. So freeze is absolutely one of the responses. Um, so this, so in our work, this is where, and, and again, everybody resonates with this, right? Cause everybody has an amygdala, everybody. And, and by the way, when the amygdala gets triggered, releases the chemicals and reduces that working memory, we call that an amygdala hijack. Okay. Because the amygdala can literally hijack our thinking brain, you know, get the cognitive brain out of the driver's seat, move into the driver's seat and take over just like a hijack would take over a plane. So what we're, what people are learning is, okay, you know, what do I, what are my early warning signs? How do I know that I'm starting to trigger? Cause mm-hmm. the body is the early warning system. What in fact are my triggers? So identifying what our triggers are, how do I know, you know, and then what's the emotion behind, why am I getting triggered? You know, this person saying this thing to me, why is the really getting into the understanding our emotional needs? I'm not feeling respected. I didn't feel included. Um, you know, I, I don't feel like I can be successful, whatever it is, there's an emotional need behind it. So that's all the stuff, um, that's in self-awareness and, you know, essentially I'm describing a half day of our training program. Um, but that's the work that we do. So I'm going to get to the strategy part. But you can't put you can't do the strategies until you have that self awareness and that recognition of what's right. happening to you. One hundred percent, I totally get what you're saying because you you don't want to be reactive. That's the problem in the first place, right? Is that you're being reactive to an external stimulus, Correct. if you will. You want to be thoughtful in how you respond. Exactly, yeah, and the fair? amygdala does not cognate. Yep, it doesn't think about the future and the consequence. It simply reacts. It's, it only knows about the present and the past. So you're right. We don't want to be reacting from that emotional, emotionally triggered state. So the goal is, from a self-awareness, emotional management standpoint, is can I, in, that, in the face of that pressure, in the face of tension and conflict, yes, can I show up and be skillful and then make good choices about how I show up? Because we're not saying don't demonstrate emotion. Emotion can be incredibly impactful. It's that we want to be proactive about it. So Martin Luther King Jr. is an example of a man who was very angry, yet channeled it really skillfully. Right? That's what made him so powerful. Is you could feel his, um, you know, you could feel the sense of injustice and unfairness and anger that he had, and it was justified. And so we're not saying don't demonstrate emotion. You just don't want it to be reactive. You want it to be proactive. Um, so you're, you're, I'll go back to your original question, which is, well, how the heck do you do that? <laughs> um, and it's very difficult because by design, as soon as we feel emotionally triggered, we start to lose our, our thinking capacity. Yep. And so it becomes hard. So, you know, we teach people to start by working on kind of less triggering situations. So you're in the grocery, the, the 12 items are less gross checkout, you know, grocery line, you're running a little late and somebody to in front of you is 14 items, you know, because you counted. Okay, that's a great place to stop. So we have a strategy called yep. the SOS. Yep. 
And we actually originally developed a strategy with the U.S. Navy over 20 years ago, actually almost 25 years ago now. Mm -hmm. um, so intentionally use the SOS metaphor because um, it was the Navy. And the first S is stop and disconnect from the trigger. Now, that's not an avoidance strategy. It's to disconnect from the trigger so that you can re-engage more skillfully. So you can come back with that thoughtful response or with that choice to, to emote, right? But just not do it reactively. So that's so, taking the amygdala out of the driver's seat, if you will. Exactly. It's like a pattern interrupt. Okay. Exactly. And yep. so just that, that ability to disconnect, and it can be something as simple as drinking a glass of water. Yep. It can be something as simple as um, if, if you're if you're in fight mode, you're going to be leaning forward. You just lean back. Um, so there's writing something down. There's all kinds of things you can do to kind of create that pattern interrupt. Um, if you're by yourself mm -hmm. and you got that email that really frustrates you, and you're about to go type, 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 reply to all, right, and add two people, that's where you you step back. By the way, you use the draft folder. The draft folder was designed for emotional intelligence. So you write that email that you want to write, you know, get it out. Don't put anybody in the to list just in case. Get up, go for a walk, change your body posture, come back and look at that email. And I can tell you, I've done this a number of times. Never once have I looked at that email and said, yeah, that's the email I should send. <laughs> right. That's me at my best. That, that one stays in dress. I, I should pick up the phone and call this person or get on a Zoom call with them um, and, and talk to them. So the first S in that SOS strategy is to find a way to disengage from the trigger so that you can re-engage more skillfully. Got it. Okay. Six seconds, I'm going to say six seconds, is the amount of time between when the stimulus triggers your amygdala and your neocortex catches up. So it is appropriate to stop for as little as six seconds in any situation. I've delivered this to surgeons, as I mentioned, and they would tell me, yeah, unless there's literally an emergency on the operating table that has to be responded to right away, which is very rare, during the operation, if something that's not quite going right, they can stop for the six seconds or 10 seconds and take time to dis disconnect and reconnect. So you've got, you know, as little as six seconds. Whether you're pausing or stopping for six seconds, six minutes, six hours, in that time, you want to oxygenate. That's the O in the SOS strategy. Mm -hmm. The intake of a large amount of oxygen carbonizes our blood, which has the physiological effect of minimizing the effect of the chemicals the amygdala has released. So you're literally fighting chemistry with chemistry. So that is just a deep conscious breath. And when I'm in my, actually, you know what? Let's just stop right now. I want, I want all you and all the listeners to stop right now and take a deep conscious breath. I tell people if they do nothing else as a result of, you know, being in my keynote session or being in our training, but the next time that person says that thing, you get that email or that idiot just cuts you off on the highway. Mm -hmm. If you talk, stop and take a deep breath, you will get more of your best self back. It will calm down a bit because um, when we are triggered, uh, we become more self-referential. We become more reactive and judgmental. It's just not a good place to, you know, to operate and try and connect from. So that deep breath calms us down and gets some of that cognitive thinking back. It actually dissipates the chemicals in the brain um, and allows us now to step in and try to be more skillful. So the deep breathing, the oxygenating is the a critical part of the strategy. Now, in this SOS strategy, at this point, you'll notice we haven't done any cognitive thinking. 
we've done things like go for a walk, drink some water, you know, lean back. We, we're, we're breathing. Now that we've got a little bit of working memory back, now the third part, the second S, is seek information. And in particular, seek information that will help calm this emotional system. Because by design, this emotional system amplifies the negative. And it makes sense. If you're in the jungle and there's a tiger around and you hear wind rustling in the bushes, what do you assume the wind is? We assume it's a tiger, right? Now there's two tigers. There's the real one and there's the one you're imagining. Yet you will start to react to the wind like it's an actual tiger. So we get a little bit of information. Oh, that person sent me that text. We amplify the negative. We assume the worst. And now we're reacting. So we want to seek information like, gosh, is this person really meaning to criticize me? Does this really mean I'm going to lose my job? Does this really mean my boss is mad at me? Because we make all these assumptions. So right. we want to check, seek information. Is this and how, tiger? And, and how, do you, um, how do you create a distinction between seeking information and starting to overthink, right? Because like you just said, you receive that text or you receive that email and yeah. you start thinking, oh man, this is going to lead to this. And then this is going to have a domino effect here. And there's going to be yeah. all these things, right? And you start overthinking. At least I do. I don't know if other people do, but of course they do. So how do you create that distinction between seeking information and, and overthinking? Yeah. I mean, now you're getting into the area of what I would call mindfulness. Yep. And so that's a whole other podcast. Whole we can other- do. Yeah. It's a whole other podcast, but is you're being aware of what's happening to your thoughts. And you're, you're aware that, no, right now I need some information because I'm feeling triggered and I'm, I'm lacking. And we, we make most of our jump to judgment decisions based on less than 5% of available information. So to be aware that I'm consciously requiring more information versus, no, I have the information I need. Now I'm just ruminating about it. Now I'm just imagining all the negative outcomes. Now I'm just, so that's really that, uh, that mindfulness and awareness of my thoughts. And so that's, to me, that's how we would, di- that's where you differentiate between, no, I'm, I'm seeking information that I genuinely don't have versus I'm just ruminating right now. Sure. Sure. I'm just letting my mind wander. Um, the SOS method, is that what you call it? Is that what you refer to it as? Yeah, strategy method. method. Yep. Yep. That seems like a much more that seems like much more of a skill that you develop over time. Yes. Than than just something that you hear about once and right. Like it seems like something that you actually work on. Oh, absolutely. I I I have people who you know I go into an organization and I speak, and seven years later I'm at some other company and they come up to me and like I saw you seven years ago and I still have this note in my notebook that says SOS. <laughs> because it absolutely is a skill. Yeah. Um, and that's the great, I mean, by the way, that's how we know that you can improve your emotional intelligence. Right. Because right. some people think, oh, well, you're just born with whatever your reactions are. Yeah. But these are skills you can learn. The, the emotional part of the brain can change. So if you can start to put these strategies into practice, you actually start to build new neural pathways. So instead of reacting and getting defensive, now I stop, take a deep breath, and ask a probing question. So we can change those default behaviors under pressure. Yeah. And I and I think that the point you just made right there is is actually pretty critical because I've always heard emotional intelligence described, and maybe this is just because I'm hearing about emotional intelligence from the wrong people, but I've always heard it described as um, you know, that person has high emotional intelligence. It makes you it gives you the connotation that people 
are just born with emotional intelligence or mm. they just have it like because it's a genetic characteristic yeah. and I'm, I'm sure there's some merit to that but yeah it makes it seem what you're saying makes it seem like you can really work on it over time and develop emotional intelligence and become a high high eq person you absolutely can the other thing that people don't understand is that there's lots, lots, just like there's lots of different intelligences we know now, there's different aspects of emotional intelligence. So take a famous guy like Steve Jobs, you know, who was known for flying off the handle and yelling at people. Well, he's not very emotionally intelligent. Well, think about him in terms of optimism and resilience and the things he's overcome. Mm-hmm. Think about in, in terms of adaptability and innovation. Think about him in terms of um, authenticity I mean, he was very authentic. So there's Steve Jobs was off the charts in some areas of emotional intelligence and very low in others. So we all have various parts of, you know, emotional intelligence that we're strong at. I mean, he was pretty low on empathy, you know, but again, pretty high on self-regard, self-confidence. Mm-hmm. So again, there's, there's various facets of emotional intelligence that right. we can either you know, have some strengths or areas to work on. Yeah. It's more nuanced than you might think at first glance. It's really more nuanced than the person that flies off the handle and they're not emotional. And, and again, a lot of people don't recognize that the person who's sitting being quiet in that moment might have something really important that they need to say, but they're not saying it. They're not being emotionally intelligent. Like according to that definition of, oh, it's only the person who doesn't fly off the handle. Well, they're being emotionally intelligent because they're not saying anything. No, they're not being emotionally intelligent because they're not stepping in. They're not speaking their truth. They're not saying that last 8%. And that last eight, that concept of the 92 and eight, um, just out of curiosity, where did that come from? Yeah, great, great question. Um, my business partner, uh, Dr. J.P. Palou Fry, who founded our company, he was coaching a couple of executives and they weren't getting along. You know, imagine two executives not getting along like that ever happens. And he had coached them to have a conversation with each other. And they came back from the conversation and he asked them, well, did you say, you know, what you needed to say? Oh, yeah, yeah. They both say, well, he probes a little further and both of them said, well, actually, you know, I got 85, 90% of the way there. And he started reacting. And so I kind of, I didn't really say everything. I said most of it. Did you say the most important part, that last part? No, I didn't say that last part. And mm-hmm. so um, that's kind of where the concept came up with. Then we did a research study of 34,000 people and determined that, in fact, it is 8% that on average, huh. people feel they leave left unsaid in a difficult conversation. Same thing with decisions. On average, people feel that, well, there's you know, 92% of my, the decisions I make every day, but there's that 8% that are the really tough ones. So we, we, we kind of verified the actual number through research. Got it. Okay, so there is real research and science behind that 92.8. I thought it was just, oh, 92.8, that sounds... That sounds really great because those are particular numbers yeah. to assign to a concept like this. It, it um, is a metaphor, but I mean, we're a yeah. research and learning institute. So in everything we do, I had a client once say, I just want to know what you're doing isn't two guys with a bottle of wine one night. making yeah. stuff up. <laughs> So yeah. we always come at it from a research and brain science perspective, because that's it. what I would want. I, I have degrees yeah. in mathematics. I'm very logical. I'm analytical. I want the data and the research behind it. Yeah. And, and frankly, that's, that's another reason why... I was so interested in having this conversation is because you've got a math and computer science degree. You've, you're clearly very analytical and logical. Um, and then on the other hand, there's this perception around emotional intelligence kind of being like a, a voodoo thing that people talk about. It's more theoretical, but yeah, 
you're applying both of those together. And I think that's, that's really important um, to look at that, to look at it through that perspective. Yeah. And as you can imagine, because of my background, I do get booked to speak yep. to a lot of analytical audiences, technical audiences, engineers, as I said, you know, doctors and surgeons, um, because they'll listen to me for five minutes, right? Oh, here's a guy with a math degree. He's like me. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And by the way, he's saying he struggled with this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I, I do work. Ironically, though, because I have a sales background, I also end up speaking to sales audiences. So I'm a bit of a dichotomy with that. There um, you go. But uh, uh, by the way, either group, first of all, they're all wired the same. We've delivered this training in, in, in 70 countries around the world. doesn't matter mm-hmm. who you are. We're all wired with this emotional system. Some of the learned default behaviors are different. Some of the cu- culturally accepted norms are different, but the wiring is all the same. It doesn't matter if you're a salesperson or engineer or a surgeon. We all have the same wiring. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's unique. And that, that's what makes you unique. And then there's that common thread among all of us that kind of ties it all in. Um, I wanted to revisit something that you said earlier about Martin Luther King. Mm. And this was on the, on the topic of emotion. Um, you said Martin Luther King has a lot of anger, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, from my perspective, anger has always been explained to me as something that is kind of a useless emotion. It's kind of a negative emotion. Um, yeah. It blinds us and, and it impairs us from having clear thoughts in one direction. Um, I want to have a conversation with you about anger. Is is anger a useless emotion? Why? How can we control our anger to make it work in our favor? Yeah, if, yeah. if we can at all. Yeah, um, I think the most important thing that I've I've learned about anger is that it's a secondary emotion. Okay, it's triggered by something else. In the case of Martin Luther King, injustice. It can be triggered by feeling like somebody has disrespected us. It can be triggered by just feeling like, you know, somebody's not doing their part. Mm -hmm. It can be triggered by feeling out of control. So there's something underneath the anger. So anger can be really helpful in terms of, number one, motivating us to action. Because often if, if we're not upset or angry or frustrated, we might not take action. So it can motivate us to action. But secondly, it can give us a signal that something underneath that, something has impacted us emotionally. Somebody's had an impact, a situation has caused us to feel there's, there's not a fairness or something like that, so that then I can manage that anger to express that emotion, to express what's really going on for me. So anger just by itself is, an, is a useless emotion. In fact, I would, it's worse than useless, right? It's a very negative, very destructive emotion, mm-hmm. just unbridled, but anger channeled with that self-awareness of why I'm angry and expressing that is incredibly powerful. I see. So anger, anger shouldn't even be thought of as a standalone emotion, right? Anger should be thought of within the context of some, some kind of trigger, right? Yes. Whether it's injustice, as you mentioned, or disrespect, or, you know, feeling like you've been cheated out of something, whatever the case may be. Absolutely. Anger, Anger is kind of your response. Now, how do you go ahead? How do you how do you teach your clients to channel their anger elsewhere? Because I would imagine that you have a lot of clients that you know high performers. I'm sure a lot of them are, of course, know, can, can get um, yeah, can experience like bouts of rage at some point, right? How do you? Yeah, and and remember, remember that anger can also cause the shutdown. So we work with a lot of clients who, when they're angry, shut mm-hmm. down. So again, there's there's some injustice. There's something that's not right to them. There's something that's happened to them. 
and yes, there's the ones that fly off the handle and that's a big mess and everybody, you know, knows what happened. But then there's the 68% of people who on average, the larger percentage who hold it in and don't express it. Right. And then it becomes toxic internally. Then we feel some shame and regret. We wake up in the middle of the night because we're holding on to this, this, this anger without recognizing what's causing that and without releasing it. Um, in some ways, the person that just blurts it out, at least they get it out, <laughs> right? They express what they need to express, right. but that not expressing ourselves, that swallowing our truth. I mean, there's so, there's so much great research on literally the physical effects that can have on us that we're holding on to things. So I'm not saying that one should run around getting angry. I'm just saying that, again, when people think of, oh, an angry person is only that person who's, you know, outwardly expressing it. No, an angry person can be the one holding on to it. Yeah. Um, and then of course, what happens a lot for them, and I'll have a lot of clients say this is, yeah, I avoid and avoid right up until I make a mess <laughs> because then it comes out some other way, right? At somebody else yep. for the wrong reason. In fact, a favorite quote of mine from Martin Luther King Jr. is being angry is easy, but to be angry at the right person for the right reason to the right degree, that is not easy. So I just, I, I love that quote. It's, it's not easy to know how to channel anger. Right. That's a powerful quote. Um, and it's, and it's funny that you said that you're almost better off just expressing your anger immediately rather than bottling it in because then it kind of explodes as yeah. one. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I want to be careful because well, it's the lesser of two evils. You know, I, I'm not even sure that's true because now that I'm thinking about it, I mean, I have two teenage daughters. Uh huh. And every once in a while, I, I I get angry, and it has such a negative impact on them that I wish actually I had just stuffed it down. So I I don't know that it's the better, the, the lesser of two. I was just suggesting that people who get angry at least they do get it out. But I don't I don't know that it's the lesser of two evils. Neither are neither are effective. Neither are helpful to our relationships. Understood. Um, you work with a lot of high performers, I presume. Yes. Um, I also work with a few low performers. We get we get some fixer uppers sent to our training. Oh yeah. <laughs> so they're they're very high on the IQ and technical skills. They are classic, super bright, super smart, but leaving bodies in their wake. Yeah. Um, so we do get sent the the low performing on the EI scale, folks. Well, I guess I guess this this question is relevant to both groups of people. I just okay. I guess I let off with that, but I think it could be relevant for both groups. You tell me if I'm wrong. Um, on the topic of motivation. I am I am a person who feels a lot of times that I can be motivated better by negative emotion or kind mm -hmm. of negative feedback as opposed to positive reinforcement. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yep. Um do you have clients that feel this way and and what are what are your thoughts on this whole subject of negative reinforcement versus positive reinforcement for for the purposes of motivation from from an EQ perspective? Yeah, I mean both can be effective. Mm -hmm. This is where this is where you get into really knowing your your pe the people on your team. So I I literally have had like two different salespeople where one person they're tough they're strong and you just say God you messed that up you know you need to da, da, da. She, they're going to just get on it. Whereas I have someone else who's very sensitive, maybe a, a, a little bit of self doubt. They that like they. they I'll give them the feedback, but it will come across in a very different way. And they need a lot more positive affirmation. Not that the tough high performer doesn't also need positive affirmation. I think sometimes we forget that. 
but they actually like a little more of the, you know, just give it to me straight feedback. So I think it really depends on the person and how they're wired, what their history is and and what will serve them the best. And, And when you become a really great leader and coach, even a peer, even your boss, right? Certainly your family, you know, you get to know what balance of, of those two is, is going to be most effective. And, and by the way, get to know it in yourself. Yep. As well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's highly, highly, highly individual based on your, I guess, experience and upbringing maybe. Yeah. And, and honestly, your, your level of self-worth, um, yep. again, a, a little bit less confident person, harsh, negative feedback it can derail them. It can demotivate them. Yep. Now they still need the feedback, yep. but how it's delivered can be very different from that person who's really confident, believes in themselves, gets a little feedback and just keeps going. Um, so it's not that you don't want to give the feedback to the other person. It's just, it's the how you approach it that's different. Okay. I think that's actually really, that's a really important point for anybody who's listening, who's listening, who might be in kind of a, a managerial position, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're managing, you know, for for people who are subordinate to you yeah. and they all have different personalities yeah. and, and levels of self-esteem, self-confidence, et cetera, you might need to think of different strategies to to give them feedback, to give each of them feedback, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Because for sure. as you said, this is a highly individual thing and you can't just create a template for how you're going to give feedback to all of those people at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that is a very, very, I mean, feed, receiving critical feedback is one of the most difficult last 8% moments for most people. Receiving feedback is one of the most difficult last 8% moments for people. And so that is, as a leader, I mean, it is your job to give give feedback, develop, develop someone. How you mm-hmm. approach that is is critical because that is such a challenging thing, even for top performers. It can be, I mean, there's some top performers that really struggle. Here's what I do know is that research shows that high performers get, take, extract three to five times the amount of information out of a learning opportunity. So whether that's a training program, whether that's someone giving them feedback, whether that's, uh, you know, an online video that they watch, they're going to take more information and put more into practice. So high performers do extract more out of, in this case, feedback. Mm-hmm. Right. Because they, do you feel as if they, they might have a more um, stable base to, to receive that feedback and respond to it? Yeah. And and they've learned over time that that feedback is not an indictment of them, that we're all imperfect and that it's actually an opportunity to get better. Even, even, even if the feedback is given to you in a really bad way, Right, because there's lots of unskillful managers out there. There's lots of unskillful people who are going to give us feedback. So, can we still, even if it's done unskillfully, can we still see that as an opportunity to get better? Can we not beat ourselves up, put ourselves down, and use that as an opportunity to get better? That's, that's I mean, that's what I've learned. Because I honestly, when I get critical feedback, I, I still get that jolt. I still get that little shock of electricity through my body. Mm-hmm. But I've learned to, you know, manage that, not take it personally and look for the opportunity to get better. Got it. So maybe the, maybe the real takeaway here is just, just try not to take things so personally. Right. I mean, in, in to some respects, again, to the degree, but not to the degree that we're allowing somebody to be disrespectful 
or yeah. not include us, or as you say, try to cheat us out of something or be unfair, right? So we, we just we need to make sure that we are still you know stepping up and, and as we talked about speaking our truth. Got it. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So it's it's not it's not as simple as just putting a blanket statement on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're 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 very complicated human beings. Right? Yes. Yep. Um, oftentimes, I've heard the advice being given to people or to myself or whatever. Um, come to work, but leave your shit at home. Mm. Right? Do you think that's actually practical in today's world, where we're working more than ever? Yeah. By the way, even even in yesterday's world, it is completely unrealistic. We we again, those underlying experiences, emotions, they're hardwired into us. Yeah. They're they're, they're cell. It's cellular. You, you you know you can't say, oh, I'm gonna you know my my fear of criticism. I'm gonna leave that at home. Yeah. <laughs> you know yep. my frustration at people who aren't responsive. I'm fine mm-hmm. if my family, you know, I don't like my family members not being responsive, but I'm fine if work people aren't responsive. No, we, we, we're just whole human beings and that emotional system, it doesn't care where we are. Yeah. It's going to react and it's going to bring all of our emotion and all of our experiences to bear no matter where we are. So no, that you can't just leave, check your emotions at home. <laughs> yeah. I've always like every time I've ever heard that in a corporate setting, I've always thought that it was kind of ridiculous advice. Um, and I was just like, guys, how can you expect people to actually do that? Right. Because we're, we're here. I mean, at a minimum, people are at their jobs for 40 hours a week. Right. Or they used to be at least, I don't know with the pandemic, but, um, I just have always thought it was ridiculous advice. So I was happy to hear that your perspective was. Well, I mean, ironically, I I used to buy into that when I was new as a leader. So I just thought, yeah, I mean, God, check your emotions at the door. Like, well, this is a business, you know? Meanwhile, I wasn't. But I was expecting everyone else to. So no, it just it it's not the way humans are are constructed. It's not the way our brains work. Sure. If you could share, if you could elaborate a little bit more, what what are some of the questions that you ask um, in the last part of the SOS strategy? Yeah. Um, so is this Winder Tiger? That's the am I amplifying the negative? Um, is what I'm about to do gonna gonna serve me? Um, another really good question is what would like, what would an exceptional person or exceptional leader that I know, what would they do? Mm -hmm. Okay. They wouldn't walk on stage and hit the person, (laughs) you know, they wouldn't send this nasty email. They would stop, they would listen. Um, and again, those are some of the self questions. So as, as we get, we haven't really even had talked about emotional connection, but as we think about how we connect with others in that moment, once you've calmed down, now you can start thinking, but what's going on for that other person? Why might they be getting triggered? Mm-hmm. We use the analogy of a bridge. What, what's on their side of the bridge? There's, a gap, there's an understanding gap between two of us. I'm on my side of the bridge thinking about myself, worried about myself. What's going on for them? Right? What's their intention? Because we tend to assume, oh, they have a negative intention. 99% of people have a positive intention. Right? And so we, we start to think about what's going on for the other person. Now we're getting into empathy. Now we're getting to thinking about what's happening for that other person. Empathy doesn't mean that we give in. Empathy doesn't mean that we're wrong. Empathy doesn't mean that we're weak. It simply means that we have the capacity to have curiosity and understand another person's point of view, motivation, and maybe we can simply validate that. Again, people get validation and agreement confused. Validating is simply acknowledging what that person is experiencing, you know, their history, 
it doesn't mean we have to agree with it. So part of the seek information questions as in our model, as we're, as we're moving from emotional management to emotional connection, are start to think about questions about the other person. Right. And that's an, that's the entirely, uh, that's the latter part of your, of your definition of EQ in the first place, right? Right. Yep. Now you yep. can imagine we could have a whole second podcast just on that second part. Cause we're really, exactly. right. You see how that works. So in, in yep. our, tra- in our, in our training, you know, yep. first, you know, two modules, are focused on self and self-management than the second right. two modules, you know, and then by the way, then you get into, okay, now that I am connecting, now that I'm managing myself, how do I step in and have a skillful last 8% conversation? Mm-hmm. That's a whole other skill. To be, how do I give somebody difficult news in a way where they will listen and not react emotionally? Right. Right. It's actually, it's such a, far broader concept of emotional intelligence, EQ, whatever you want to call it, it is such a far broader concept than people like to give it credit for. Yeah. Um, and you, and frankly, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, we, we're definitely going to have to have you on, on, onto another podcast to talk about the latter half of that definition. But um, this was an awesome conversation, Bill. I know you have to run here, but um, I really appreciate your time. And I think this is, I think what you're doing is, is very critical in today's world because this topic often, A, isn't, totally understood and B kind of gets brushed off. Yeah. Um, kind of how we opened up the podcast in the first place. But um, I think it's I think it's very critical for people to understand in the world we live in today. So I think this is awesome and would love to have another conversation in the future. Well thank you. You ask great questions. Um, and I love talking. I'm a, I am a professional speaker, so I do enjoy this. Um, so yeah, this was super fun for me and um, I really appreciate you bringing this learning to your listeners because it's just it's so critical it's such an important life skill so kudos to you for you know having me on where can people find you online i think people might want to jump into this topic a little bit deeper and where can people find your work so i wanted to give you you know a chance to hand off to to your to yourself yeah i'm on linkedin bill benjamin i'm relatively easy to find i work at the institute for health and human potential which i know is a mouthful so ihhp.com um, there you can find me. You can learn about our training. There's a free EQ quiz you can take. There's a whole bunch of resources there. We have a pot. My business partner has a po- free podcast on the last eight percent and emotional intelligence. So there's lots of great resources at ihhp.com. That's awesome. I think uh, if there's anybody, if there's anything that anybody takes away, it's that last eight percent concept because yeah. everybody can relate to that. That's for sure. Everybody yeah. does. It's a, it's a great concept. Yeah. ihhp.com. Bill Benjamin, thank you so much. All right. Take care, Arch.